One of the most extraordinary and incredible facts about early Christianity was its ability to influence the world around it and particularly to spread as rapidly as it did. And this began as we, as we sort of saw last week, we're looking at Pentecost, it began at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter sort of flows out of the upper room and begins to preach a message, uh, of an evangelistic, the first uh, non-Jesus given, you might say, evangelistic message and 3,000 people in that morning are added into the faith, 120 people become 3,120, roughly speaking, on that day. You know, at the start of the second century, the church comprised, so uh, people estimate, around 50,000 people, which in itself is an extraordinary uh, sign of growth. And that, but that was in a total population of about 60 million people in the Roman Empire, about 0.08%. But the movement from that moment continued to grow rapidly, so much so that by 300 AD, there were an estimated 6 million Christians, some 10% of the population. Now, some people suggest this continued to midway through uh, the 300s, the 4th century, so much so that uh, some people suggest one in two people belonged to a church by that point. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary growth curve. It's miraculous. And not just that, the church has had an extraordinary influence. Uh, loads of documents at the time by sort of prominent Roman people suggesting that the church was beginning to become a problem. And the reason it was so problematic is because of the way that its people were willing to live. And that's true then, but it's also true now. I had a chat yesterday at the test match with a man who was at least a few beers deep. And this happens, you know, when you're in that kind of environment, and he'd had a few, and, and I hadn't had any. And so we began to talk about God. And he, he said to me at one stage, he said, I just don't know why so many people are interested in God. And I said, I don't know why so few people are interested in God. He said, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. And we begin to talk, begin to talk about it. He gave me the classic line, which is, look, I, I don't really get God, but you know, I want to live a good life, a good moral life. And I began to sort of interrogate some of those presuppositions there. How are you defining good? What is your, bar, what is your metric? What is your guideline for good? And of course, what became immediately apparent is that his guideline for good was the Christian good. You know, we should just be good to other people. We should just love other people. Of course, there's only a vision for this because of Jesus, because of the influence of the church in the world. How is the church so successful? How have we arrived at a point where the whole of Western life is based upon Christian morality and Christian ethics? How have we got there? Well, many, there are many reasons for that, but one thing is that the church very early learned to bear witness and became extremely effective at bearing witness to the reality of God in their midst through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was done in such a compelling way, in such a simple way, and so repeatably and simply that people just couldn't help but be drawn in. And as many of you will know, this didn't happen in, uh, apart from or uh, great opposition and persecution. It happened almost because of it. In fact, many early Christians were called not only to live for Jesus, but also to die for him. Let me tell you one story of an early Christian named 
Vibia Perpetua. Uh, we have a picture of her. <laughs> it is clearly an artist's impression. Here she is with Felicity, her slave. Now, what happened was that in the early third century, the Emperor Septimus Severus, known to those who have read Harry Potter, established a policy disallowing conversion to Christianity, the kind of policy you see today in places like Malaysia and many Islamic countries. And severe persecution broke out, particularly in North Africa, a place called Carthage. Now, Vibia Perpetua was 22 years of age at this point, and she was young and she was married. She was married very young, actually. And she was a mother at this point to a newborn child. She was arrested in prison because of her faith in Christ, including, along with her, her, her slave here, Felicity, and also her brother and many others. Now, she came from a prominent family. She was a noblewoman, and because of this, she was singled out. People wanted to make an example of her. She was a public figure, and so she was a threat. Shortly after being imprisoned, she had a vision And in this vision, it became clear that what was going to happen is that she would die. She saw what was a great ladder reaching up to heaven. And she climbed this ladder in this vision with ease. There was a dragon there, despite the dragon guarding it. She just got past this dragon and entered into heaven. She arrived at the summit of this ladder and saw what was an immense garden. At the center of the garden was a tall gray-haired man dressed in a shepherd's outfit, surrounded by thousands and thousands of people in white robes. This man said to Vibia Perpetua, welcome, my child. She approached him, and she was given a morsel of cheese which tasted sweet to her. She awoke and realized what the dream meant, that she would die, suffer and die for her faith. Now, at this point, her family, who weren't Christians, began to put intolerable pressure on her. They said, look, just renounce, recant all of this stuff. Look after your child. You owe it to us and your child. Have pity on your baby. All you need to do is perform a sacrifice to Caesar. Is it really that difficult? She said this. She simply kept repeating, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Finally, the emperor condemned her to face the beasts. And uh, far from being terrified, she returned, having heard this, to the prison in high high spirits. She said in her diary that the one God was so moved, and quote, he began to show us great honor, realizing that we possessed, possessed some great power within us. Just before her death, she had a second vision, in which she faced a fierce Egyptian warrior, with a large crowd watching her. Suddenly, she became a great warrior in this vision, and she defeated the Egyptian by stepping on his head. The crowd shouted their approval. Then a man wearing a purple robe said to her, Peace be with you, my daughter. She said, Then I woke, realizing that I would be contending not with wild animals, but with the devil himself. I knew, however, that I would win. She did win. She died a beautiful death. In the end, guiding uh, the person who uh, slit her throat, guiding uh, the sword to her own throat. Now, lest we think this is a thing of the past, estimates suggest that in the year 2000 alone, 160,000 Christians were martyred for their faith. One in seven Christians today uh, globally faces persecution for their faith. 360 million Christians experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In 2021, 5,100 churches were attacked. 5,895 Christians were killed. And 3,829 were abducted, often in the quiet of the night where nobody could speak up for them. 
Now, for many of us, we hear stories like this of Christian witness in, uh, in a, an environment of persecution, and we feel deeply moved, but these things still feel so distant to us because it's so far from the world that we inhabit. But what perpetual story and those of the contemporary martyrs, the ones I've just spoken about, bear witness to is the fact that many people have been willing to pay the highest price for their faith in Christ throughout the ages, and still do today, in order to witness to belief, to the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, we may not have to die for Christ. The question for the church in the West, the question for you and I today is not whether we will die for Christ, but how we will live for Christ. This is the issue. This is the great issue facing the church today. Will we be found living for Christ? As Jesus puts it in his own words, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith in the earth? Are we willing to pay the price to witness to the Lordship of Jesus? Turn with me to Luke 10. A brief Bible study. I want to make one key point from both of these texts. The first thing we see is Jesus sends out the 72 is... He sends them out to continue his ministry. That Jesus intended his disciples to witness his life, his death, and his resurrection is so clear. It barely needs to be said. You've heard, if you've been part of the church, so many sermons given on sharing your faith or similar things to that. We all know this is front and center in Christian devotion. We're a missionary faith. That's who we are. And we see this within the account of Luke 10. Here the disciples, this wider group of disciples are, you know, not far, if you read the accounts themselves, not far into their life of following Jesus and already being sent out by him two by two to witness to his kingdom, to his rule and his reign. And what we find is that they're given his message. He's been preaching the kingdom and they too are offered the opportunity to preach the kingdom. It says this, verse 8, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal those who are ill, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the message they're given is the kingdom message. They share his message. Secondly, they're called to be courageous. It says here they're sent out like sheep among wolves. And you felt like that, I bet, like sheep among wolves in that moment. Often we feel like that as we're sharing our faith. We feel the contention. We feel the pressure. We feel the opposition. Have you ever felt that way in your Christian life? It's the norm, isn't it? But they're called to be courageous. Thirdly, they're called to be dependent, aren't they? They're to take, as Jesus has no purse, no bag, no sandals, And what Jesus is saying here is just trust me. Trust my presence is enough. Trust me being with you. You being with each other. Trust that will cover it. No MacBook. Not even a Bible in hand. Just a living relationship with Jesus and the companionship of somebody walking alongside them. They're to be dependent. Finally, they're to share his authority. We didn't read this this morning, but this is one of my favorites. Uh, Verse 16 Uh, uh, Verse 17, I should say, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, their experience was glee because they had the same authority they'd seen him have too. They had authority over sickness. They had authority over demons. You know, witness is impossible unless we have his authority. Just as well he's given it to us. Now, 
for those that are taking notice and reading their Bibles when they're not at church, you know this is already the second occasion Jesus has sent people out. He sent the 12 out already. This is the second missionary journey, if you like. And the key point I'm making is so simple, and it should already be unescapable and unavoidable. And here it is. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be a witness to Jesus. Write it in your book. Sketch it in your Bible. Stick it on your phone. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a witness to Jesus. Is that These two things are indivisible. We're a missionary faith. And that means, conversely, that if we're not witnessing to Jesus in our lives, we have to ask the question, am I being an authentic disciple of Jesus? Now, everybody's going to do that differently because Jesus places his spirit in each of us and it, the spirit testifies through us in myriad different ways. But testimony about Jesus living a witnessing life to Jesus is fundamental. Now, we see this in Acts as well. Turn with me to Acts if you're not already there. Now, even the most sort of cursory basic study of the book of Acts shows that the disciples after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're expected to do the same stuff. Jesus doesn't water it down. He doesn't say, well, I've done the, re- the death and the resurrection. Work is now done. Sit on your hands, folks, and celebrate. Kick back, relax. Where should we go on the summer holiday? We could all celebrate together, couldn't we? No, the first thing Jesus does is he witnesses to them. He comes to them and he shares, as as Acts 1 says, many convincing proofs. He witnesses to them. Second thing he does is commissions them. He says, don't leave, wait for the gift. Wait for the gift, my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And the gift, of course, is the Holy Spirit. They, in the context of that, ask him a question. And the question is, is basically this. Is it over now, Jesus? Their language is this. Is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is the kingdom thing complete? We preached it when you sent us out. Is it over now? No more of that missionary stuff, surely, Jesus. I quite like carrying a purse. I like my sandals and I like my bag and my cloak. Please don't say you're going to send us out again. Are you going to finish what you've begun? Will we see it happening today or maybe tomorrow? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it over? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not for you to know the day or the time the Father is set by his own authority. In other words, no. Sorry, folks. It's not over. But you will receive power. Number one, it's not for you to know. Knowledge is not yours to have. You don't need knowledge of this kind. You will need power, so I'm giving you power. And thirdly, you will be my witnesses. You will do the work. You will do the work. I am off. Peace. I'm ascending to my father and your father. I'm leaving some power. The Holy Spirit, the personal, God's empowering presence, the personal power and presence of God. And because and through him, you will do the work. You will be my witnesses. Delegation. Any managers in the room? Feels good, doesn't it? Delegation. But delegation without authority is oppressive. Without training, 
Jesus has trained them, and now he empowers them. Go do the work. Key point number two. Jesus wants witnesses. That was key point number one. Here's key point number two. The Holy Spirit empowers ordinary people to become witnesses. You can't do it on your own. You need your brother, your sister beside you. That's what Anne said. That's what she said. She said, I knew if I brought him up here, he'd be welcome. I didn't have to do it alone. I knew if I went and got a coffee, if I wandered off somewhere, he'd be welcomed. You'd all do it. We need one another. Secondly, we absolutely have to have the Holy Spirit. The whole thing with Anne happened because of the Holy Spirit. A conversation between her and God, whispers of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus whispering the will of God to bring this man into the kingdom. So what? Coming into land here. Well, the danger, of course, is that we can begin to think, as we hear all this stuff, we can begin to think it's, it's for other people. We outsource our faith. You know, we do this for so many reasons. Firstly, because we hear stories like Vibia Perpetua, and we think, oh, a little tough for me. I'm only really sort of in the the foothills of Christian devotion. I don't know enough yet. I couldn't. I couldn't possibly yet. Let me go to the sort of. Let me go to the Bible class first. Or you say, well, I've done Alpha. I've done the Bible class. I've only done Bible class number one. Haven't done Bible class number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. And therefore, I'm not fully prepared. Fully prepared, and I need to be fully prepared if I'm going to be a witness to this. I have to have the full, sort of, the full thing. <laughs> the full download. I've only been a Christian for four decades. Yes, I've been baptized and confirmed and, and all of the other stuff, but there's other people who know a bit better. I couldn't possibly do it. I don't know enough. What did Jesus say again? It's not for you to know. It's for you to Go. You'll receive power. We come here and we sit here. You know, it's just so powerful. It's so important to be in a gathered environment of worship. The whole point of this is infilling to go. But some of us, we come here and we think like sitting in the seats is the mission. We, we've come here and we've delegated it. It's like, oh, I'm, 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 it's not actually for me. I pay a bit of money to this church. And that fellow up there, he does it. I outsource it to him. Guys, I'm figuring out how to do this for me. I'm one person. You don't want to put it on me. <laughs> the mission of the church is the, is the, whole, it's the gift of the whole totality of the church. It's for all of us. And we don't know, but we receive power. Or we can be, perhaps be moved by a story like Perpetuous, and we think, well, I'm not in that kind of environment. It's not for me to have that kind of life. We don't know how possibly an example like that could relate to us. It seems so extreme. Did you know that the Greek word for witness used in Acts is martyrs? And it's the same word from which we derive the word martyr. Therefore, martyrdom is merely one expression of what it means to be a witness to Christ. A martyr is not a special class of Christian. It's something we're all called to do as we bear witness to Jesus. His kingdom is ruling his reign. 
So how do we do that? What does that mean for us today? Well, Open Doors, uh, the ministry that works with particularly the persecuted church, we as a church will be pleased to know we support their work. We're a partner church with uh, this ministry. They talk about there being two different kinds of persecution. Firstly, there's smash persecution. We see this in the world. Churches being bombed, forced marriages, Christians abducted, pastors kidnapped, and things like this, Christians being murdered for their faith. This is smash persecution. But they also speak about squeeze persecution. Stifling restrictions in daily lives. People being refused a job because of being believers. Education being denied to people on the basis of Christian devotion. Now, Open Door suggests that we as, the, we as the Christian West are not experiencing either smash or squeeze persecution. I would have to agree with that. But when you hear about squeeze, it sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? How many times I do this? I was just arriving somewhere just the other day. I had, I had the Bible app because I'm trying to cover the whole Bible in a year. And I need a bit of help sometimes to listen to it. And I arrived where I was arriving and it was blaring out you know, because of the engine noise and everything else. And I arrived at this place, it was quite quiet, there were people near the car, and I just turned it down just a little bit. Have you ever done that? They don't need to hear Proverbs in the car park quite that loud. There may be something I'm embarrassed of, they may think worse of me. That's kind of this squeeze mentality, isn't it? We know what it's like at our workplaces for for Jesus, for devotion, for even the, the notion of faith per se, let alone Christian faith, to be squeezed out of the center of public life. We feel this sometimes in our own families, in our homes. Certainly those of us who are in educational environments today, you know this, you know this. It's one of the reasons the queen has been so amazing. As a Christian witness, she's borne witness time and time again to the reality of God. We may not face death here and now, But when we look at what got the earliest Christians killed, we see that the challenges we face are not so different. The earliest Christians were martyred typically because they stood up against an ideology that was hostile and foreign to Christian devotion. It's an ideology thing. Now for them that looked like worshipping Caesar, and they, some of them did, but most of them wouldn't do it. Most of them were unwilling to sacrifice to Caesar to bow the knee. You say, well, we surely we don't have ideologies like that here today. Well, we do, folks. Think about materialism, the notion that what you see is all there is. That is rammed down your throat every day, every minute, every hour. If it's not at the bottom of a, it can't be observed in a test tube or it can't be seen at the bottom of a microscope, it must not be real. That's scientific materialism. This is something that we all face. You've maybe not called it that. What about consumerism? The idea that we find meaning in what we consume, what we purchase. You know, this is so fundamental in our culture that we've begun. You know, pornography is the consumption. It's the consumption of sexual experience. Even, Even something as sacred as sex has been subsumed under consumerism. And it is debasing and destroying of human reality. People made in the image of God are being dehumanized in the most intolerable ways. And you say that there's no ideology we're facing. It is heinous. Degrading. Individualism, the notion that 
The most important thing that human reality can be boiled down to me and my experience. That I'm the one, fundamentally, it's all about. You know, this has become so focused in our generation that we are now placing on our children the pressure of completely defining their own identity. We've pushed God out of that conversation entirely. And our children now believe, many of our children believe that they have to discover and discern for themselves who they are rather than receiving that as a gift from the Heavenly Father. And these ideologies, when mixed with Christian devotion, which often is what happens even in the churches, materialism, we have a faith that's defined only by what's visible. Consumerism, we have a faith which is defined by what I get, what I receive, what I consume. We become connoisseurs for content. And we consume and consume content, and we don't even know even how to live out the most basic Christian content. Individualism with faith. My faith becomes about me, myself, and I, rather than about my brother and my sister. Rather than serving God, we become God. What are we to do in the face of these ideologies? I promise it's over pretty soon. What would it look like for the church today to recover the unstoppable witnessing force it had in the early days and has had a number of times through Christian history? The first thing, we must recover pure worship, pure devotion. Courageous witness comes from pure worship, from seeing Jesus again, from seeing him. You know, those perpetua, two visions Two visions. A vision of Jesus is essential if we're going to witness to Jesus. Recovering the simple pursuit of nothing but him. Not Jesus and. Not Jesus and. Jesus, just Jesus. Simply Jesus. Secondly, we need to rediscover clear confession. I don't mean, by when I say confession here, I don't mean saying sorry. I don't mean confessing your sin. Brilliant things to do. I'm talking about a simple confession that says, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. You know, I I love that because it's like, I don't need to explain myself to you. You may disagree with me. we We can even agree to disagree. We need to learn to disagree lovingly, by the way. I don't have an answer necessarily even for you. I've just got a confession. Here's my confession. I'm a Christian. I know that might be difficult for you to hear. You may not even accept me as that, but that's what I am. I am a Christian. While not every Christian was and is called to literal martyrdom, every Christian is called to surrender his or her life to God. You may never have to die a martyr's death. Here's my question. Are you ready to live a martyr's life? And this is a life which is centered on Jesus and his kingdom, in which they remain forever the main thing. That's the call within this message. Yes, to bear witness with words and deeds, but simply to do it from a place of conviction and belonging and surrender to Christ. Simply to live a life that says, I am a Christian. Finally, remember Perpetua's second vision. First vision, I think. With those crowds gathered around the throne. Who are those crowds? Are they not the great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews? 
Church, the great cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of martyrs, they're watching. They see it. And I think they're watching to see how we live and how we die. They're asking, do they see as we saw? Do they understand as we understood that there is nothing more precious, there is nothing more apt for a human life than giving everything for the glory of God?